Good morning, Tyndale University. I'm Carl Santos. I'm the pastor at New City Church in Calgary and Tyndale alum for my master's degree, and I'm currently finishing my doctoral work at Tyndale. So pleasure to be here again. I think it's the third time I've had the privilege of speaking to you at chapel. So let me jump right in to Mark chapter 4, verse 35 to 41. And we're going to try to take a look at this storm calming in a fresh way. Okay, let me read that for you. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with them. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the sea, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now, before I jump into it, let me say a quick thank you to Neri Santos, professor at Tyndale, uh, for a class we took on Mark a couple of years, last year, a year ago, two years ago. And um, not only was Neri excellent, for he's a brilliant prof, but also he turned us on to some great literature. So I was able to really uh, understand this 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 passage much better by uh, looking at some of the resources we picked up in that class. So thank you, Neri, if you're watching. Um I owe complete credit to this from one idea that I saw, um, especially about where a scholar noted that in this passage, Mark uses the term mega on three different occasions. He talks about a mega, meaning a great windstorm, a great calm, and a great fear. And if we look at those three things, I think what we see is a passage that is all about identity. And I know that's a little different. Now, I don't want to disparage or, or undermine the fact that this is a passage of great comfort because it speaks about Christ being the stiller of storms. That's kind of the normal narrative you hear. And that's a good thing. Christ is the stiller of storms. But I think if we look just a little under the surface, we begin to see that there's a great deal of revealing happening in this passage. In the, and if we look at those three megas in the order they come, the wind, the calm, and the fear, we're going to see who we are, who Jesus is, and who we are in light of who Jesus is. So those three things, who we are, who Jesus is, and then who we are in light of who Jesus reveals himself to be in this passage. So let me jump in right away to the first point, which is uh, this mega windstorm that arises. Now, the windstorms, storms of any type in our lives, reveal who we are. They're a great, uh, they're a great revealer of character, and in this passage, it's no no exception because you know it's obviously an incredible storm because we have experienced fishermen who are terrified. So it must be a pretty heavy storm, and they rebuke Jesus. the The wording in the Greek is quite emphatic. They're they're rebuking Jesus, saying, "Don't you care that we're perishing?" Now, what's interesting about that is this is the second time that Christ, that, they, that the disciples have spoken directly to Jesus in the Gospel of Mark to this point. The first instance comes in chapter 1. And in chapter 1, what happens is Jesus had retreated to go spend some time alone, and the crowds are looking for them. And then the disciples find Jesus, and they rebuke him there and say, don't you know people are looking for you? And again, it's some emphatic wording in the Greek. So it's clear that they're rebuking him. So now... Two times they've spoken to him so far, and in both times they're kind of rebuking Jesus. And this storm 
trials in general reveal precisely who we are. And in the case of the disciples, it's revealing that they think they know precisely where Christ should be in a crisis. And in this COVID situation, boy, haven't we probably had similar thoughts? Haven't we wondered, where is he? Why is my, uh, why am I losing my job? Why is my, why are my studies disrupted? Why am I sick? Why is my friend sick? Uh, There's a lot of questions. And trials tend to reveal who we are. And what they are literally saying is, Jesus, if you cared about us, you wouldn't be asleep. And this idea that they know precisely where Christ should be in a crisis is common to us. But look at the very modern problem they're having. We are of the same mind. We believe that our suffering and God's love for us are incompatible. This is, in fact, why so many skeptics in Canada think that Christ and Christianity and the gospel is irrelevant because they don't, they can't square a loving God with their personal suffering and world suffering. But here we have that, that precisely thing, that, that exact thing on display, that the disciples are saying, if you cared, you wouldn't be asleep. You'd be helping us because that's what you should be doing if you're God. And boy, that's revealing, isn't it? Doesn't that reveal the core of our hearts that we are ultimately people who deep down think we know better than God? And that is not something new. That's straight out of the garden that we have always thought we knew better than God. And this storm reveals that in the disciples. And Jesus doesn't take it lying down, no pun intended. He gets up, he rebukes the the storm, and then he rebukes them. Don't you have, where, where, uh, have you still no faith? You see, the other gospel writers will have Jesus saying, oh, you of little faith. But Mark is much more harsh saying, you don't have any faith. <laughs> and it's Jesus being a parent the way he ought to be. You see, because imagine your life. At most of us, if you have teenage children at some point, they're, if well, maybe, maybe not, but oftentimes kids will grow up and at some point in their lives, they're going to say to you something like, you don't love me. And at that point, I think it's I'm, I'm, I think it's okay for the parent to get a little frustrated and say something to the effect of, hey, when you were a baby and you could offer me nothing, you cried, you ate, you didn't, you made, you took my rest, I had to change your diapers, I, you could not have survived without my constant care and attention. And you gave me nothing in return other than a couple of smiles that were probably gas. You know, and you have the nerve now to say that I don't love you. And there's a certain amount of justice in that. And Christ is coming now to them and rebuking them and saying, don't you believe at all? Don't you understand who I am at all yet? I know it's early chapter four, but uh, have you no faith? Because it's right that he rebukes them. And I would love to go into more detail because I, I preached this sermon longer. It's a longer one. I'm trying to stay tight for the chapel timing. But in a nutshell, the mega storm, the mega windstorm reveals who we are. And who are we? We're people who ultimately think God is, we know better than God. Okay. We are depraved as the Calvinists would say. So that's what the storm reveals about who we are. But now what does it say about Christ? So this is point two, and this is about the mega calm that comes next. You see, first, let me say this as an apologetic uh, aspect of this, this, this story. Um, if there's any skeptics listening, great. This, here's, here, I'm speaking to you. But otherwise, Christians, this is something you should be aware of. You see, when a storm is hitting a sea and the sea begins to churn, that's, it's pretty tumultuous. And when the storm ends and the wind ends, the sea does not go calm. If you've ever been on a sea, in fact, if I even had a cup, I don't have one with me, and I was to shake my coffee cup, 
it would start to move, right? The the coffee would move. If I then held the cup still, you'll notice the, the liquid will still move. The liquid doesn't stop moving right away. So some people have said, well, Jesus wasn't, this is no miracle. Jesus was just a guy who knew meteorology. You know, he's just a guy who understood the signs of the times better. But if that's the case, then what Mark would record was he rebuked and the, the wind stopped and he wouldn't mention the sea, would he? Or he'd say the sea continued to be choppy. But if the sea goes calm immediately at Christ's command, then we are not dealing with a natural trick. What we're dealing with is a miracle because a lake and a sea does not stop churning like that. So that's an apologetic, I think, right there that shows us that this is not just a trick of nature. This is a miracle that happened. And of course, we know in the Old Testament who controls the sea. In Psalm 107, I think Psalm 92, I don't remember for sure. Psalm 107 for sure. It's God who controls the sea. And here we have Christ doing something incredible. He's rebuking the sea. The word siopeo he uses there in Greek is not a kind word that means peace. You know, we think of peace as, oh, you know, in a more subdued tone, but it's actually a rebuke. In fact, it's used 10 times in the New Testament, that term. And it's always pretty harsh. It's more akin to be quiet or shut up. And he's rebuking this, uh, the sea. Same thing, actually, the same word he uses uh, to rebuke a demon in chapter one. And when he does this, you'll notice something. He's not acting as Moses did or as Elijah did. See, when Moses puts his arms up at the Red Sea, he, pr- he puts his arms up and that act allows God to then interact and to part the sea on Moses's behalf. So you have Moses's person, you have the act of faith by raising the arms, and then the act of God. When Elijah prays for rain, there's Elijah, the agent, there is the prayer, which is the the petition, and then you have God acting, bringing the rain. But when Christ speaks, especially here, he speaks, it happens. You see, there's no intermediary. There's no prayer that he's petitioning God. He is acting as God. And this is understandably terrifying. He reveals to the disciples that, who is this here? <laughs> is this God? Who's, who's, because only God does this in the Old Testament. Um, so it reveals his, his divine, divine nature. That's one thing it reveals to us clearly as we're reading it. But it also reveals the faith that you and I ought to have. Christ has this faith. He's asleep in the back of the boat. And usually when you hear this prayer, this, this passage pre- uh, preached, we say things to the effect of... Um, Uh, You know, he's asleep because he just trusts his father. He knows he'll be okay in the storm. I don't think that's true. Let me explain. You see, what we basically do often is we say that Christ's faith in the boat is kind of like Superman's. That Superman, if he's on a train that is about to derail, he would sleep. And the reason he'd sleep is because he knows he's indestructible. That even if the, the train derails and blows up or falls into an ocean, it doesn't matter. He's Superman. It can't hurt him. He's indestructible. And if that's the way we see Christ, he sleeps because he's so confident that nothing can happen to him. His father's got him. Nothing bad's going to happen. That is That can't be what Christ is saying because bad things do happen to him. The faith that he is showing by falling asleep is because of his human nature. That's what I think we have to see. He's asleep. The fact that he's asleep tells us very clearly that he's a human because God doesn't sleep. That's pretty clear. He's asleep as a human. He is asleep trusting God as a human, and this is why. Not because he thinks he can't drown in in the ocean, because the cross is going to show he's quite mortal in that regard. What it shows is he's asleep because he knows even if he dies, it'll be well, because God's plan cannot be thwarted. 
So the, the, he is able to sleep in the storm because God has calmed the storm in him. There's no mistrust. There's no anxiety. He knows even if the worst happens, it can only be for his good, Romans 8.28. It can't hurt him. And this is the faith you and I are to have. Not to trust that Jesus will come and fix the storm, because let's face it, it doesn't happen, does it? Many of you are suffering. Many of you have suffered. Many of you and, I, and, and myself, all of us, we will suffer. So what can the faith that we are meant to have is not to have this pie-in-the-sky faith that says nothing bad will befall us, but to say, oh, I trust God so completely that even if the worst happens, he is yet on the throne. He is still for me. And that is the faith Christ is showing here. And we are meant to have this because he understood Romans 8.37. Remember, in these, in all this, we are more than conquerors. Remember that line? Eight, that's 8.37. Um, he doesn't say through all these sufferings, Christ will save us out of them. And when we, you know, will save us. Instead, he says, in the suffering, you are more than conquerors. And Christ understood that entirely. And when you and I can rest in this COVID season, knowing that our lives are not stable, that we are not in control of the storm, we can rest because he has calmed that storm in us, first and foremost. So we've seen quickly who we are. We are people who think we know better than God. We then can meet God and realize he is, Jesus is God. He controls the storm. And this brings the mega fear. It's amazing that a mega, a great fear comes after the calm. You would hope for relief, but that isn't what happens. They're more afraid of the, of what happens after they're saved. And this is a recalibration. You know, what, it, what storms do to us is they force us to reconsider everything. And there is a calmness here that we need to sit in. You and I as Christians need to sit in the uncomfortable silence of God. He may be saying nothing to you at the moment. You may be just wondering what's going to happen. We certainly don't know what our economy is going to look like and what the world's going to look like in a few months. Not really. And we want to run from this silence. You see, I remember reading an article. It was, I think, a London Guardian. I don't remember which one. It was, it was a, an English paper. And the writer noted, notes that for the first time in human history, we are produce, we're writing more than we are reading. So with all the blogs out there, we are producing plenty. We're saying a lot on podcasts. We're writing a lot of blogs, but we're not reading as much as we used to, which is a very scary thing. That means we think we have much to say, but we don't listen. And he, he postulates that the reason we do this is because we're actually afraid of silence, that we are not comfortable sitting in that uncomfortable stillness that the world so seldom offers us because we filled it with noise. In fact, he even mentions that even when it's quiet, the first thing you do is put headphones on. You know, you put on a music or a podcast to drown out the silence. And he thinks it's because we don't, we're uncomfortable with ourselves. And let me push even deeper. There was a, a, a composer, an American composer in 1952 named John Cage, and he caused quite a stir in the music world for, for a season because he produced music that had incredibly long pa parts of music that were silence. In fact, you could Google his name, and I think on YouTube you can find videos of him, and he's about to start playing, and everybody's there, the crowd's there, and he puts his hand over the keyboard, and he leaves it there for minutes. His hand is just sitting over there, nothing, dead silence. And in the 50s, people saw this and men, some people thought he was a genius. Other people left because they, they didn't like the fact that they were made, made to feel uncomfortable in the silence because, you see, we rely on sound. We rely on noise. Noise and sound are cues for us. 
when you go to a, mu- a concert, you expect to hear music. If you don't hear what you're expecting, you become uncomfortable. In fact, if you go to a hockey game and so, and the home team scores and there is no response, it's dead quiet, how do you feel? Well, terrified, because you expect the sound to tell you how to behave. I should cheer here and, and so on. In fact, this is why horror movies are so effective. You see, horror movies and, and, and directors have figured this out, that they when things get most tense and you know the, the victim is looking is is walking through a dark home realize the the, the the music usually dies and it gets very quiet and it, they build the tension and anxiety because you see in silence anything is possible when there are no oral cues for you then anything can happen and we don't like that feeling we don't like the not knowing what's coming and in the horror movies when that happens that's why you get terrified when a little pussy cat jumps out onto the screen because in that moment you're uneasy because you don't know what to expect so with all that said think well, let me add one more thing imagine you're at a concert think think about how we use silence to control things or or noise we use sound to control things the calm comes over the disciples and they don't they feel very uncomfortable they're afraid in this calmness in this quietness in this stillness and it's like at the end of a concert or a play if you've ever been to a play i used to go to stratford and to the shaw festival in niagara on lake a lot when i was in ontario and at the end of the play there's a small window of just a few seconds the curtain goes down and between the curtain going down and the rabbit applause there's that short window of silence and in that quiet window What I love about that moment is that's the time when the play speaks to you. In that stillness, you are forced to consider what the play made you think, what it made you feel, how it challenged you or your assumptions or culture. And in silence, the thing, the play, is working on you, exegeting you. But we don't like it, do we? So immediately what happens? We start clapping. And the moment I begin to clap at the end of a play, it stops telling me who I am and I start telling it what I think it is. And I start clapping and saying, well done, you are excellent, a great performance. And it breaks the spell. This, me, I break the silence and I no longer let it affect me. You see, the silence needs to be sat in. It needs to be dwelled in or else it'll never work on you. And we today are in COVID and it's uncomfortable. We want to get life back to normal as quickly as possible. I am saying, let's not rush to it. Not that we don't want to fix and and make people healthy. We do. But we need to listen to our sovereign God in this quiet time and say, it's uncomfortable. I don't like the silence. I don't like the quiet. I don't like the uneasiness, Lord. But tell me. Tell me what it is. Tell me what you want me. What, What is it in me that needs to change as a result of this? And remember, we want to run from it. When we feel exposed, we want to run. If you're on the street and you hear a gunshot and there's a little puff of smoke beside you, um, you run for cover. Why? Because you know someone has seen you and you can't see them. You feel exposed. Think about sitting in a coffee shop and you're gossiping about somebody. You know, you're bad-mouthing a coworker, But then you turn around and realize that coworker has been standing behind you the whole time. How do you feel? I'll tell you how. You immediately want to run and hide and get out of eyesight. And the reason you want to is because you have been exposed. That person has seen the real you, that you were actually petty and selfish and jealous 
and prideful and hurtful and just a mean person. And because they have seen the real you, you want to run. We do not like to be seen. And in the stillness, the calm that comes after the storm, they are terrified, I think, because they are seen for the first time. And they see, they're seen right to their core and they want to get out of it. And I think the psalm, this, this passage is telling us to sit in this stillness of the stillness season of isolation and let God speak to who you are. Let me close with a, it's a pretty long quote, but I want to read it. I hope I'm not going too far in timing. It's from a book that is often called a children's book, but it's really wonderful. It's called Wind in the Willows by Kenneth Graham. And in this book, there's a mole and a rat and they're friends. And at one point they hear that their friend, the otter, has his his son has gone missing. The baby otter is missing. So these two, the mole and the rat, jump into their rowboat and start looking for the rat, the mole, or sorry, the otter. And as they're rowing, they find a little island in the river or the creek and they hear music coming from it and some light and they stop their rowboat on this little island and they go investigate. And what they find is basically a fawn. It's a creature, some kind of a being, but you know, he's got the legs of of a goat and the upper body of a man and the horns. And they find the otter there with this, this creature, but they're overcome by what they see. Now, let me read this to you and please, it's a little longer, but, but dwell on it with me. Then suddenly, the mole felt a great awe fall upon him, an awe that turned his muscles to water, bowed his head, and rooted his feet to the ground. It was no panic terror. Indeed, he felt wonderfully at peace and happy. But it was an awe that smote him and held him, and without seeing, he knew it could only mean that some august presence was very, very near. With difficulty, he turned to look for his friend and saw him at his side, cowed, stricken, and trembling violently. And still, there was utter silence in the populous, bird-haunted branches around them. And still the light grew and grew. Perhaps he would never have dared to raise his eyes, but that though the piping was now hushed, the call and the summons seemed still dominant and imperious. He might not refuse were death himself waiting to strike him instantly, once he had looked with mortal eye on the things rightly kept hidden. Trembling, he obeyed and raised his humble head, And then, in that utter clearness of the imminent dawn, while nature, flushed with the fullness of incredible color, um, seemed to hold her breath for the event, he looked in the very eyes of the friend and helper. He saw the backward sweep of the curved horns, gleaming in the growing daylight, saw the stern, hooked nose between the kindly eyes that were looking down on them humorously, while the bearded mouth broke into a half-smile at the corners saw the rippling muscles on the arm that lay across the broad chest, the long, supple hands still holding the panpipes, only just fallen away from the parted lips. He saw the splendid curves of the shaggy limbs disposed in majestic ease on the sward, the lawn. Saw, at uh, last of all, nestling between his very hooves, sleeping soundly in entire peace and contentment, the little, round, pudgy, childish form of the baby otter. All this he saw for one moment, breathless and intense, vivid on the morning sky, and still he looked. As as he looked, he lived, and still as he lived, he wondered. Rat, he had the he found the breath to whisper, shaking. Are you afraid? Afraid? murmured the rat, his eyes shining with unutterable love. Afraid of him? Oh, never, never. And yet, and yet, O oh mole, I am afraid. And then the two animals crouching to the earth bowed their heads and did worship. 
that I read, and I know it was long, but you understand they come in the presence of this silence, this awe that terrifies them. But rather than run from it, rather than applaud, rather than get back to normal and get to their boat, they sit and they worship in that silence. You and I are called to do that. But here, let me really close in one minute. How do you and I get the ability and the power to do that? You see, because when we're in the gaze of God, when he is staring at us, his eyes burning on us will either purify or destroy. And when he's looking at you and you are exposed before God, how do you stand still? How do you sit before the eyes of a God who you know you don't deserve to sit in front of? You know you're unworthy to stand in front of. What is it that allows us to sit and endure the uncomfortable gaze of God? And the answer comes in another time in the Gospel of Mark that Mark uses the word mega. He uses the term mega in chapter 15, verses 37 to 38. Let me read that to you. Um, Let me go back to verse 33, actually. It's when Christ is crucified. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, a mega voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a mega cry, a loud cry, and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Jesus sat in the silent gaze of God on our behalf, carrying sin on his shoulders. And because he endured the mega silence, and then he responded to it with a mega cry, he took that terror that we feel when we're looked at by God. And because he uttered a mega cry, you and I can enjoy the mega calm. So we don't have to sit in the presence of God terrified that we are going to be destroyed, but we can with grace and peace and joy and all sorts of things, look at God and say, thank you. I will take the quietness of COVID. I'll take the uncomfortableness of you staring at me because I know you mean me good because all your wrath was poured out on your son on the cross. Because Christ endured the mega cry, you and I can enjoy the mega calm. I wish I could say much more, but I want to be honoring this time. I probably have gone too long already. Thank you so much. Let me pray for us. Father, help us to endure this this season well. Help us not to just to just not want to just get out of it and to get back to normal life, but to sit in this unease and ask, Lord, what are you saying? How is my life to be different? How is my church's life to be different? How is the country to be different? How is my province? How is how is life to be different? What are you trying to show us, Father? It's uncomfortable. And while we want to escape this uncomfortable season, Lord, we want it to work on us. We don't want to be like Israel that failed to respond to your promptings, Lord. We trust, we know you are sovereign. COVID did not happen by accident. It did not happen outside of your knowledge. You are using it for your glory because you use everything for your glory. Show us that, Lord. Help us look at your son so that we might endure this uncomfortable and difficult season. I pray that for all who are watching, all who are listening, and for Tyndale University itself that is also enduring a difficult time. Father, we love you. We ask this all in your son's incredible name. Amen. Thank you.